Hey everyone, welcome to the 29th episode of our news podcast. This is going from June 13th to June 19th. This podcast is sponsored by Mission Essential Gear, your one-stop combat shop. Home of the Duels, the tactical handbook for unit leaders. That's available at megearco.com and Amazon as well. Check out the Freelancers, which is a media and research collective dedicated to covering modern conflicts with a soft focus on foreign fighters. Find them on Twitter at CBT Freelancers, Instagram at Freelancers Blog, and their website at freelancersconflictblog.wordpress.com. Also, check out Fortress International, which is a veteran-owned research and analysis firm based near Washington, D.C. You can find them on Twitter and Instagram at Fortress underscore INT and their website at FortressLLC.org. And we'll head into the podcast. And we're going to start off with the COVID-19 numbers and news. Week began with 175 million cases, 3.79 million deaths. Week ended with 178 million cases and 3.8 million deaths. There are still three countries in the world with over 10 million cases, the U.S. at 33, India at 29, and Brazil at 17. There are 28 countries with over 1 million cases. That's up from 27 last week. There are 14 countries with less than 1,000 cases. There are 149 confirmed cases of reinfection worldwide. 63 of them have recovered so far. Three have passed away and the rest are still considered active. The last confirmed cases were reported on June 18th by the United Kingdom, which confirmed 53 of their previously suspected reinfections. There are over 71,000 cases of suspected cases of reinfection in the world, of which 277 have passed away. As of June 19th, over 2.62 billion doses of any COVID-19 vaccine have been given in 180 countries. The U.S. was sitting at 45.1% of its population fully vaccinated. The world's population was sitting at 16% fully vaccinated. Record cases were reported twice in Moscow, twice in Fiji, once in Afghanistan, once in Kyrgyzstan, once in Vietnam, and once in Mongolia. Record deaths were reported one time each in Afghanistan, Cambodia, and Mongolia throughout the week. On June 14th, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson delayed the easing of lockdown restrictions until at least July 19th, as the Delta variant, which was discovered in India, spreads through the nation. On June 15th, California and New York both lifted all statewide COVID-19 mandates, and on the same day, the U.S. surpassed 600,000 COVID-related deaths. And lastly, on the 18th, daily cases in the U.S. fell to an average of 11,786, which is the lowest average amount since March 26, 2020, the beginning of the pandemic. Moving on to Europe, the G7 summit held this year in the United Kingdom finished up on June 13th. President Biden pushed for unity between the respective G7 nations and a strong stance against China on the global stage. European leaders made it clear that they were relieved that the new Biden administration I'm sorry, they were relieved to meet the new Biden administration after tense years with the Trump administration. French President Emmanuel Macron welcomed Biden back to the club, quote unquote. Moving on to Asia and Australia. In China on June 13th, a gas explosion at a two-story building in the city of Xi'an in Hubei province left 12 dead and 138 others injured. At least 913 homes and businesses in the area were evacuated as a precaution. The cause of the explosions is still unknown, but Chinese President Xi Jinping has called for a full investigation into the incident. 
On June 15th, the Pentagon announced that it was considering setting up a permanent naval task force in the Pacific region to counter China's growing military power in the area. The plan would also establish a named operation for this task force in order for the Secretary of Defense to be able to easily allocate resources to this mission. Sources working with Politico said that the task force would be modeled after NATO's Standing Naval Forces Atlantic Task Force, which is an immediate response task force set up during the Cold War to monitor Europe. It's not yet clear if this Pacific task force would comprise only U.S. ships or be a multinational force. And on June 17th, China launched three astronauts into space using a Shenzhou 12 capsule. The crew are the first to inhabit China's Tianhe module, which is the first part of the nation's Tiangan space program. I'm sorry, space station. Commander Ni Haisheng, Lu Boming, and Tang Hongbao will spend three months on board the module as China's longest crewed space mission and the first in over five years. 11 launches are scheduled to deliver all the modules for the planned space station, which is expected to be operational by 2022. In Taiwan, on June 15th, 28 Chinese military planes entered Taiwan's air defense identification zone, marking it the largest incursion by the Chinese military in the zone since Taiwan began regularly reporting such incursions last year. The Ministry of Defense identified a Y-8 anti-submarine warfare plane, a Y-8 electronic warfare plane, four H-6 bombers, two KJ-500 airborne warning planes, 14 J-16 fighters, and 6 J-11 fighters. And in Australia on June 18th, a Sydney man was arrested after a counterterrorism investigation determined he supported the Islamic State. Police say the 24-year-old man, who has not been named, pledged allegiance to the group, collected extremist material, and possessed recipes for IEDs. If convicted, he could face 10 years in prison. Moving on to the Middle East, in Israel on June 13th, Benjamin Netanyahu's 12-year reign as prime minister came to an end with the swearing-in of Natali Bennett as the 13th prime minister of Israel. In his first address to the Knesset, which is Israel's parliament, Prime Minister Bennett thanked Netanyahu and his wife by saying, quote, We didn't always agree, but you both sacrificed greatly for the state of Israel. In his address, he also called for unity among Israeli leaders, Israel has had four par parliamentary elections since August 2019 due to no party winning an absolute majority of the Knesset seats and parties were reluctant to form coalitions until now. Bennett, who is the leader of the right-wing Yamina party, is now leading a coalition with Foreign Minister Yair Lipid of the centrist Yesh Atid party, Defense Minister Benny Gantz of the centrist Blue and White party, Finance Minister Avigador Lieberman, excuse me, I'm butchering these names, of the center-right Israel Our Home Party and Deputy Prime Minister Mansour Abbas of the United Arab List Party, the first Palestinian party to hold a place in Israeli government. In his address to the governing body, former Prime Minister Netanyahu, referring to his Likud party, said, quote, we will go into the opposition with our head held high until we topple this government. On June 15th, the Palestinian Red Crescent reported that 27 people were injured in Old City, Jerusalem, while clashing with Israeli police. To my knowledge, those clashes are still ongoing. 
On June 18th, U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin confirmed that the Pentagon plans to replenish Israel's supply of Iron Dome missiles after the most recent round of fighting with Palestinian groups. U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham said that Israeli Defense Minister Benny Gantz was planning to make a $1 billion request to the Pentagon, and Secretary Austin told the Senate Armed Services Committee that they should expect to see a request from him very soon. In Syria, on June 15th, the Afrin Liberation Forces, ALF, claimed that they carried out several operations against Turkish-backed troops inside Afrin, killing 11 and wounding 13 others. And on the 17th, Israeli Defense Forces destroyed an outpost roughly 150 meters from the nation's shared border that was reportedly used by Hezbollah as a reconnaissance post. This marked the first Israeli action in Syria by the new Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. Moving on to Afghanistan, heavy fighting between government forces and the Taliban continued over the week. On June 13th, Taliban fighters attacked security forces in the Shigala district and Koshende district, both in the province of Balkh. There were no word on casualties at the time in Kandahar's Maruf district when car bombs were set off. The first injured at least six security personnel and the second left no casualties other than the bomber. On June 16th, government forces retook the center of Dalat Abad district in Faryab province. Little official details about the clearing operation have been made public, but Afghan troops did have air support at their disposal. The district center fell to the Taliban about a week prior to its recapture. And during the push to retake the center, an Afghan commando unit suffered 23 killed after their positions were surrounded by Taliban fighters. One of the commandos killed was 27-year-old Sarab Azimi, son of the retired General Zahir Azimi, a former spokesperson for the Defense Ministry. The young Azimi was a Special Forces officer that received training in the U.S. and Turkey and served in his unit's support section until he took command of 35 special operators to retake the district. General Azimi blamed officials for not providing his son's unit with adequate support. In a statement, he said, quote, his blood is not more than the other sons of this nation. I am proud that he performed the duty given to him until the end. According to a source with Tolo News, the unit dispatched vehicles away from their position to pick up and transport reinforcements into the area, at which point they were attacked and surrounded. According to the same source, over 100 Taliban fighters and 90 security force members were killed during the fall and recapture of Dalatabad. And on June 18th, government troops cleared Helmand's Garashek district of Taliban fighters, and an army officer was killed in Kabul's Kala-i-Kashif area by unknown gunmen. And we will take a quick break. We'll be back with Africa and the Americas. We're back with Africa. Not much going on this week. On June 17th, four Chinese railway workers were abducted in the state of Ogun by Onun gunmen. In the struggle to abduct the men, the kidnappers killed a local police officer, and not much else is known at this time. The Public Relations Office for the Ogun State Police Command has yet to comment on the incident. Moving on to the Americas in Venezuela, general unrest was seen across the nation this week. On June 16th, civilians in the city of Chichiriviche confronted National Guard troops at a gas station to protest the lack of supply. There were also accusations that local officials take the gas that does arrive, leaving little for the people. 
In Peru last week, we spoke about the recent presidential election and some of the tensions surrounding it. On June 18th, the headquarters of the armed forces received a letter from some 80 retired military officers calling for the nation's military to refuse to recognize free Peru candidate Pedro Castillo if he is declared as the winner of the election. Although Castillo appears to have won the election, no official winner has yet been declared as popular force candidate Kiko Fujimori has alleged widespread fraud by Castillo's party. Castillo gained 50.13% of the popular vote, but Fujimori's lawyers say she is seeking to nullify 250,000 votes, mostly from Castillo's rural support base. Interim President Francisco Sagasti ordered an investigation into the letter and asked the armed services to remain neutral regarding the elections. Supporters of the two candidates took to the streets of Lima the next day to protest. The UN's human rights chief has urged calm and restraint while the election is being decided. This is a situation we will keep a close eye on as it unfolds. Lastly, in the United States on June 15th, U.S. Senators Mitt Romney of Utah and Rob Portman of Ohio spoke about a draft infrastructure deal that they're working on with some Senate Democrats and their optimism that they could get at least 10 Republican senators to vote in favor of the bill. In addition to getting 10 Republicans to clear the 60 vote minimum, another hurdle may be getting all 50 Senate Democrats to sign on to the bill as this current draft totals $579 billion worth of spending as opposed to President Biden's proposed $1.7 trillion bill. Portman said the draft includes funds from enhanced tax enforcement and unspent COVID-19 relief funds that were granted to states, which both total to over $160 billion, according to government estimates. So we'll see if they get anywhere with that. And that's all I got for you guys this week. Um, Me and a couple of buddies have a separate podcast. It's called the Catwalk Boys. We recently did our eighth episode talking about some of the origins of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And we're looking at doing a second part to that series, I guess, if you want to call it that. Hoping to do that this week and kind of move forward with that story. Um, So if that's something you guys are interested in, highly encourage you to check it out. You could find that anywhere you find this podcast as well, all on the same apps and everything. And I want to thank you all for supporting this podcast. Of course, it means a lot to me and you could find it on your favorite apps. Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker, Overcast, Radio Public, Pocket Cast. Anywhere you listen to podcasts, you can find us there. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate, all one word. And again, that's all I got for you this week. So we'll see you around.